0: Good evening, and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. It's Tuesday evening at 7.30 p.m. here in the Eastern Caribbean, and that means it is time for you to interact with us on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. As usual, I'm Nathan Owens, sitting behind the broadcast desk in the studio of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Sitting across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Um, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who might be listening to the program. We're on the air for the next 90 minutes, so go ahead and invite others to tune in, whether it be a neighbor, whether it be a family member, even if they're living on another continent or another part of the world, go ahead and let them know that That's Truth is live on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and they can send in their questions. Now, we will jump into our questions. Pastor, we have some questions that have come in since last week that we'll start out with before we get to our topic Question coming in. Good night, Brother Nathan. I would like to ask Pastor Murphy a question. This is the reason why I'm going to ask the question. I attend a Baptist church and like, and I like going there, but something is bothering me right now. The pastor gets behind the holy box on Sunday to preach the word, but instead of him preaching what thus saith the Lord, he gets up and preaches his own opinion and throw in words. There is scarcely a Sunday you go to church and you don't hear throwing words instead of preaching the word. Case in point, today that was there was not a message from God that was full from him. It was pure word throwing. I was so upset that I left there more empty than full. The thing is you can't speak to him because he will get upset when you try to talk to him about things like that and other things. Now tell me, should I continue attending a church like that? When you go there, all you hear is words throwing and nothing to build you up spiritually, nothing to help you on your spiritual journey. To me, it's more like a dictatorship than a democracy. It's like what I say goes, no opposition, no standing to reason. Should I continue to attend a fellowship like that? What is your take on it? Pastor, a very heartfelt question. What are your thoughts?
1: Well, there's several um, things that come to mind. The first thing that hits me um, is the fact that whatever is happening in that church, it's affecting this person very deeply, and it seems to be draining them um, spiritually. Uh, as a matter of fact, there are five expressions that she uses, in, or he uses, I'm show sure who it is, um, in that um, email. Um, she uses the word, something bothered, she's bothered, she said she's upset, Uh, She said she leaves empty. Uh, She said there's nothing uh, to build you up spiritually. There's nothing to help with your spiritual journey. So it seemed to be a toxic environment, and it seemed to be, if I take on face value uh, what this person is saying, this church seems to be in a crisis mode, and that is a matter of great concern. Now, I'm assuming, uh, not knowing the whole situation, but if I just respond to what is said, and assuming uh, the allegations that she is raising, especially against the pastor. If those allegations are true, um, I think there's a, a, uh, evidence of immaturity. It seems to me that there's pettiness there as well, and in, in, a, in a real sense, uh, a level of conceit as well, to think that nobody should be able to say something that is contrary and can express their opinion. And clearly, there is a problem of self-will and uh, the other expression of course is used that it seemed to be a dictatorship so there seemed to be a dictatorial uh, leadership style that this person adopted Um, there are five complaints that are mentioned uh, in the correspondence here one uh, three times she says that the pastor throws words at members regularly and that is shocking Uh, secondly she said the pastor preaches his own opinion i am not too sure what she means by that does that mean that he practices what's called eisegesis, reading to the text and just give his own take on it rather than doing an exegesis to exactly what the Bible means? Uh, and then he said the pastor preaches, does not preach messages from God. Uh, I'm not sure so who to take that. Is he preaching for the Bible? Or uh, is this person taking it, what he's taking, he's choosing a text to target somebody? I'm not too sure exactly how to interpret that. And then the other thing he said, the, the, um, he runs a church like a dictatorship as opposed to democracy. And then you you use it where you can't, um, what he says goes, no reasoning, no opposing view, uh, can't speak to him because he gets upset. Um, These are real, real, real issues, and I want to suggest that if these problems are not resolved, um, I can see one of seven things are going to happen in that church. One is, There's going to be polarization and division within the body. Some are going to side with the pastor, some are going to side with whoever the other person is. Uh, Secondly, there could be a church split uh, as a result of this. Uh, You can result in members leaving the church, even though the church doesn't split, members leave the church in addition to this individual. You can have pastoral resignation because if he's having all of this on the current, sooner or later, um, he might feel it's not worth the effort to continue. Or number six, you can have a situation where the church actually dismisses the pastor because he's lost his effectiveness and is not willing to work uh, with people. And the other d- uh, dangerous thing, Nathan, is there could be a prolonged civil war, ecclesiastical civil war going on in the church. Even though there's no spit, people don't leave, there's just this tugging going on, and so the church comes to a stalemate and eventually, perhaps, it will die. The, the other option that is clearly open to this church is what is called repentance, reconciliation, and some kind of renewal. And I think those are the seven things that people have to look at if this thing is not resolved. Now, I want to respond to the specifics and give my uh, my opinion on these things. First of all, the idea of throwing words, uh, targeting people, targeting uh, people, Now, my question is this, is this premeditative, or is this coincidental to the text that he's preaching? Uh, And that is the value of expository teaching, by the way. Uh, you, You come to a topic that, if it is current, nobody can say, well, you know, he took out that text and brought it, it comes to that point. But I can see a lot of people sometimes think that a pastor comes and preaching a topic and uh, there are people sitting in the congregation who really think he's targeting them. I had an experience recently where a lady who was attending our church sent me some correspondence about some issues, and up to now I haven't responded to them, and it's not because it's a matter of neglect. I knew what I was going to preach on to the next next several weeks, and I knew where she came, she would no doubt come to the conclusion that I am preaching because of what she told me. So I avoided any kind of contact with her. I didn't let her know I was going to preach. What, like that. And I don't even know what the problem is, but I have an idea of what the issues are. And um, so there are times when, as a pastor, you've got to use judgment in those matters. But if it's deliberate and it's constant, I think the pastor has a real problem and somebody needs to address him and talk to him in private over the matter. And if it cannot be resolved in private, take another person and go with him, as the Bible says, Matthew chapter 18. If it is still not resolved, I think you can request a meeting of the church, discuss the whole matter uh, in the open forum. But that's the first thing about throwing words. Uh, preaching his own opinion. Uh, no pastor should do that. Every pastor should get the message from the Word. And I would hope that um, this is being said, not that he's not preaching the actual Word himself, but the selection of the message seemed to be targeted at somebody. That's how I interpret that. Does not preach messages from God. Uh, again, um, this person is probably saying because of the where the message is angled at the different individuals, uh, this certainly cannot be from God. It must be coming out of the pastor's head. As far as the church uh, as a dictatorship and not a democracy, uh, I am deeply concerned when I hear things of that nature because... I think that um, Peter uh, dealt with this matter. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 to 3. But Nathan, there for me for just a second. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 to 3.
0: That says, The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Verse 2. Feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock.
1: That word "their lords, not being despots. That's what it's talking about. People who are dictatorial in in how they run the church. That's what Pope Peter is saying. Uh, And... um, If you look into the scriptures, I think you can build a case for what is called team leadership. And what that really means is to get other people involved in decision-making, discuss issues... Uh, On on matters Now you might be very strong On a particular matter But you still have to bring it To the people If you've got deacons Discuss it with the deacons See what they've got to say And then Once you make a decision In the church boardroom Or whatever That needs to be brought To the church Let the church know What is happening And get their input Into the whole matter Uh, I think you can find a case You know You find that Paul Works with Barnabas Paul works with Timothy Paul works with Titus when the Lord has sent out disciples, he's sent out two by two. And every time the Bible talks about pastors in the Bible, every church, it's always a plurality of of elders. never find it singular. That's very, very, very significant. So I think that um, a dictatorial type of leadership that doesn't take uh, other people's opinion into, 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 into effect, into the whole matrix, I think that is very, very problematic. I think churches should be involved in decision-making. The, the members of the church um and I feel that when it comes to final decision-making, it needs to be put to a vote, and if the majority uh, agree to the particular plan, it goes. If they don't, it is squashed. That doesn't mean the pastor has abandoned the plan, but he has to persuade the people. So he, he might need to go back to the drawing table, re-examine the thing, and maybe present it in a different way. But. If the church is not for it, I would never advocate that a pastor uh, goes against that. As long, you know, because it creates problems. Remember that you're working with people. Uh, a pastor's duty is to persuade. He's not to make a unilateral decision. He's not autocratic, and uh, he must not try to shove things down the throat. But his job is to persuade, and even to persuade very strongly. People need need to get involved, and they have to have a sense of ownership and responsibility in the outcome in order to really participate in a ministry, and a pastor must lead and not drive. So I am saying that uh, that is problematic, and I think it needs to be addressed. By the way, if you go into the New Testament, you'll see democracy at work in the church. For example, Acts 6, when they had a problem about the social welfare program meeting the needs, you find that... uh, they they told it brought them out of the church and the apostles said, Look, choose you from among yourselves. That is, and they chose the seven people. They, not the apostles, but it brought them out of the church. Uh in Acts chapter 13, when they're sending out Paul and Barnabas on missions, again it's the church that selected Paul and Barnabas uh to do that. In Acts chapter Corinthians chapter five, when it comes to discipline, the young man that was involved in incestuous relationship with Paul uh, directs the church. He said, you know, you had to put him outside. You do it. That's your responsibility to church. And then in Corinthians chapter 6, when it comes to the matter of litigation, uh, Paul said, choose from among yourselves somebody to hear the case and deal with the matter. This is church involvement in, in these kind of matters. The other thing that concerns me uh, is the attitude that was mentioned in the correspondence. Uh, What he says goes, no reasoning, no opposing views, can't speak to him, he gets upset. Uh, That is a matter of concern. And as a matter of fact, there are three principles that are mentioned that probably need to be looked at. Uh, As far as the past is concerned, there are certain qualifications that are asked to be met uh, one of those is First Timothy chapter one verse seven. Titus chapter one verse seven. Sorry, please.
0: Titus one seven says, "For a bishop must be blameless, as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre."
1: That word there, not self-willed, very, very, very significant word. Uh, and the the Greek language has to do that he must not have an arrogant self-interest that disregards the opinions of others. That's what it's about. And from the language that's used here, uh, it would seem that would be part of his problem. So that probably need to be brought to his attention as courteously as possible. Courteously as possible, and that might involve a personal meeting and just draw his attention. past what the book says, etc. Uh, of course, the, the matter that he is um, not allowing reasoning, he's opposing every views, He seems to be a person that this has to be um, kind of an irascible, um, uh, short-tempered type of a person. That is a matter of concern as well. In Titus one seven, and then of course the Bible talks about having self-control or being sober or temperate. Uh, those are things that need to be exercised. Having said that. There are four restraints to pastoral authority in the church, let me mention those quickly. Number one is the Word of God. Uh, no, No pastor is above the Word, and if he's violating the Word or going contrary to the Word, that ought to be brought to his attention. Number two is the constitution of the church. When a pastor joins a church, he agrees to the constitution. The constitution sets guidelines and has a framework by which the pastor must operate. And uh, if a pastor is not prepared to uh, follow the constitution of a church, the proper thing he should do is resign, uh, because he can't, um, or get the church members to change the constitution. But as long as he's agreed to it when he becomes a member of the church, or begins to pastor, he has to be willing to follow the Number three is the church board. Um, I, I, the church should have a, the pastor, but he should have a church board, to have deacons on the board. That's to help to control. Uh, his authority as well, and then the congregation that is the ultimate uh, tool that can be used to uh, keep a pastor within certain parameters, so I think those are the four controlling uh, restraints uh, that can be used if it's becoming an era of being dictatorial, and you ought to be aware of that as well now. You ask me the question, uh, should you continue, should you leave, whatever it is. Let me give you my personal advice, and uh, I would suggest that um, do not make the decision to move until you follow the simple advice. But After that, if you don't get any change, any satisfaction, I think it would be up to your discretion to make the decision. The first thing I would say to you is to prayerfully reflect and evaluate the situation that the Church is currently at and uh do so and ask yourself the question do i have any personal bias or malice or prejudice against the pastor that's the first thing you have to settle in yourself because you might be getting uh you might be looking at it with a jaundiced eye so you can't see exactly what is happening so prayer would help you to to gain insight into your real evaluation of how you look at him uh, try to detach yourself emotionally from the situation and look at it objectively and dispassionately. Once emotion gets into the whole picture, it clouds your judgment and your understanding, and you normally would not be able to make good good, good uh, choices. The third thing I would say, having uh, prayed and uh, tried to detach yourself emotionally, would be to request a meeting with a pastor at a personal level. And uh, do this um, as soon as possible. And this would be, of course supported by Matthew 18 you've got you feel that you're offended by something so you should go to him i would sh- i would thank him first of all before i begin to criticize him for any um you know if he's had any kind of positive impact uh, as the to of preaching the Word, I think you ought to butter him up a little bit there and make him, because the moment you come negative, you've got defense coming up. So the first thing to do is to say, look, Pastor, I appreciate what you've done, what i but then uh, you can say, well, that there's some concerns I have. Share with him your observations and your concerns about what is currently happening from your perspective. Uh, thirdly, explain how the situation is affecting you personally and how it's affecting the Church collectively. Now, he may have a blind spot. He may not really understand what is how people are seeing uh, what is going on and how it's affecting them. Uh, number four, share your view of the situation and uh, suggest to him, if possible, that if you were in his position, don't tell him to do it, <laughs> okay? But, Pastor, with your position, this is how he would approach it. And uh, uh, covenant with him to pray for wisdom and courage and humility to deal with the situation as it demands and and the other thing i would suggest to you is that if you know any other pastors that your pastor uh, respects and trusts maybe it might be wise to uh to just ask them if there's some way that they can help uh with the current situation and talk to the pastor about this matter um i think that would be uh something that needs to be done and uh so those are my suggestions as far as how to go about it. Um, but remember, when you approach him, approach him with respect, uh, deal, with the, deal with the matters objectively. Uh, make sure that your welfare is the church's welfare and the welfare of the ministry and not just to hurt him or to attack him. And then genuinely um, uh, let him know that if, it, if something isn't done, he's going to not be effective in this ministry and it's going to continue to hurt the church I would suggest to you that approach it that way and then tell him you're prepared to wait to see what change can be, can be done within a reasonable time um, if that doesn't work and uh, nothing changes I think that you have the moral responsibility then to act and perhaps even to, to make a withdrawal from the ministry there but I want to caution you uh, and to wear this thing seriously when you decide uh to leave a church, it can be very devastating. Let me point out a few things to you quickly as far as that is concerned. It severs friendship. A lot of times you mm-hmm. build friendship over the years and it's it it, it, it just it just uh creates havoc within uh relationships. Uh it, it also fractures a fellowship because if you move from one church to another church, sometimes that creates a problem for the church where you've left and the attitude towards the other church that have embraced you uh the other thing is that sometimes you put the church in financial jeopardy uh you're, you're, you're giving you have to look at that aspect of it well how does it affect the ministry church sometimes uh outside the normal finances of the church it can cripple a missions program for example that you have certain pledges and certain commitments are made to missionary based on what you have committed yourself to. Now you drop the whole situation, and that creates havoc. These are things you should weigh very, very, very carefully. And then also, if you have children, it will affect your children. They build relationship with other kids coming to that church. Now you're tearing them away from there and going to another church. I think that is very, very... And then above all else, whether you... Uh, believe it or not it is very painful for a pastor when that happens Uh, there's a sense of failure there's a sense of disappointment and there's a sense of loss unless a pastor is conceited and egotistical uh, I do not know a pastor who ever loses a member without feeling it in some measure Mm. and feel that he has been a failure to some level now even though he may feel that it may be justified he still feels that there could have been something he should have done so he keeps blaming himself Uh, So I'm saying to you When you make a decision like this um, Don't take it lightly uh, uh, Work towards more healing Than to create a rift But if uh, your suggestions are are offered And and there's nothing done To try to remedy the situation I think that you have got uh, Good grounds for saying I prefer to go to another fellowship Where at least I'm being fed I'm not getting words thrown at me Uh, The church is not toxic, uh, and I can understand that because I do feel that that's important. That is my suggestion. I don't know how helpful that will be, but I do feel that uh, your situation there, your church situation is is very serious, and I really uh, feel that unless something is done to remedy the situation, it's just going to escalate, and it's going to be very, very nasty in the long term.
0: I can tell from messages that have come in that this individual uh, is not alone. This Another listener says, and they don't attend the same church, the different type of church, but they are relating to that question and they say their pastor always has an agenda for his members. He always throws words, and it really disheartens them so much that they no longer attend the church. Uh, Charity doesn't exist at that church. I haven't found any church since, but sometimes I feel myself, I find myself in the Catholic Church where I just kneel down and pray to God during work time. Is it wrong for me to go to that church?
1: look a church building is i mean if I was in a, if I was in town and the Anglican Church was open, I felt I needed a place to go and pray I would go to the Anglican Church and with the Catholic Church. The building is not the problem. The problem with the Catholic Church for me as a pastor and as a Baptist is the doctrine mm. uh there's no question that mariolatry is is false. It is, it is exactly what it is, idolatry. You're praying to a woman, you're, you're bowing to a woman, and there are other doctrinal issues that are clearly uh, false as well. That's my problem. But I, I, I find it uh, incredible that there's not an evangelical church within Antigua that you could probably find. I can't conceive of all pastors being that nasty in, in that regard. Um, uh, and The other thing I'd like to say, that you're never going to meet a perfect pastor. Uh, he doesn't exist. Uh, so, um, but I do feel that there's a limit to what people can take. I mean, if you get harassed every time you come to church, who wants to come to church being harassed all the time? But I do feel as well that sometimes people uh, don't. And, and again, this is where I, I would suggest to most pastors, any pastor, listen to me. The best way to do preaching is expository preaching. It eliminates this charge that you are coming up there just to target people. Uh, because when you come to the issue, you deal with it as it is there in the text and I, I think that uh if people who are topical preachers they're trying to find topics to preach every Sunday, and normally they try to look at what's the what's the situation in the church what's the needs in the church, and that can lead so do are turn to target individuals so I think it it might be wise to change the method of uh, and that's start preaching to a book uh, so many things you can do in that that matter. But it's a grave concern that this person would say something similar. It seems as though there's really more problems than I would have thought. Uh, And I hope that this person can find a a church, at least, that they feel comfortable in.
0: You mentioned something there that there's no such thing as a perfect pastor. And as you mentioned that, in my mind, was a reminder to me, and I would encourage each uh, listener to remember to be gracious to our pastors uh, we don't know what they are going through behind the scenes. We don't know what uh, type of attacks are being taking place against their families, so on and so forth. But again, uh, there is, it is a relationship, and there is some give and take. Pastor, can you just real briefly mention, in relation to this whole situation, how does humility fit into the situation from both parties? Mm-hmm. I think that,
1: uh, you know, if you read Philippians chapter 2, it's an interesting chapter where Paul talks about, maybe you should look there, Nathan, and yeah. read the first five verses or so.
0: Philippians 2, 1 says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each of you esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant." and was made in the likeness of men.
1: The point I'm making there, as a matter of fact, I I thought of preaching that on Sunday, to be honest with you, uh, talking about uh, what's the ideal church. Hmm. And that would be, in my mind, what the closest thing to being an ideal church. But you notice that they talk about compassion, they talk about not being conceited, treating people better than yourselves, and and, uh, uh, be lowly-minded. That's where humility comes in. And then it uses the classic example of Christ, uh, though, though he was in the form of God In the sense that he of the same nature of God He did not consider equality with God Something to be held on to But made himself of no reputation And became a servant I think the key to this whole thing Is that believers uh, Need to see themselves as servants Honestly I think mm. If you really see yourself as a servant There's not much that can hurt you You know the problem is that you get hurt when you think you're somebody. A servant is there to serve, and I think if we, at the past, adopts that attitude, and the members adopt that attitude, you've got people serving uh, as opposed to feel that they ought to be served, and you've got what is called humility, putting the other person before themselves. So I think it is crucial uh, for interpersonal relationships, as this passage showed you. That's the key. The humility of Christ is used as a model to keep uh, keep the the church. And uh, there, with compassion, and uh, Paul said, "You know, that's the way you fulfill my joy." So I think that's the k- whole key to interpersonal relationship, This whole, this whole humble um, um, spirit that a person has, this servant attitude. I think, in my judgment, that's the key to to these kind of issues.
0: If there's one thing that I have learned over the last few years, it's the importance of guarding our tongue and watching the words that we choose. Yeah, especially in heated situations like that. Pastor, in with that in mind, if the Lord were to lead this individual to leave the church and to go find another congregation, how should they answer a question when someone, a third party, a fourth or fifth party, says, but why aren't you attending that same church anymore?
1: Well, again, a lot has to do with what spirit they leave the place. If they leave with malice and hatred and um they got a beef in for the pastor chances are that when they give that kind of response they're going to try to uh, tear him down and uh, blame him for everything Uh, i think that when a person is going to leave a church i think they ought to be courteous enough to explain to the pastor here are my reasons when they leave the church so when the pastor hears the reasons that you leave the church whether he agrees with them or not those same reasons that you gave him for leaving the church uh, if you are asked to go I mean, when you go to leave, I think you should be able to make those statements, but do not say one thing and then say something else when you go to another meeting mm. uh, I think that 's where the problem because the pastor already knows why you. so when the, when he 's called and asked well why this why did this person leave your church? what you say and what the pastor should coalesce so there 's no no question at all that both of you understood. The reasoning or the rationale behind the decision to leave. The problem is leaving and saying one thing and then going out there and saying the very opposite. So there's a credibility gap that is there, and normally that is very disparaging to the pastor. and I, I don't think you should do that. Uh, but if you're leaving because you think there's confusion, or you think because uh, you think the pastor is targeting people, you said, "Pastor, I can't handle this any longer." Uh, and you know, if anybody asks me why I'm leaving, this is the reason I'm going to give. Let me be very, very, very clear in my mind, and uh, this is how I view the whole situation. I think is that kind of upright honesty is what is needed, so there's no disparity between what the two people are thinking or why they're leaving. And if somebody should ask the pastor, well, why did this person? He ought to be able to say, well, this is what they told me, and I take them for their word, uh, without going to any other detail as well. I think that should be the best thing to do in that situation.
0: You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the beautiful island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. And for this program, each Tuesday evening, we are also on Facebook. You can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed. You can listen to the program, watch the program, and you can interact with us. And we would love to hear where you're listening from on this evening if you are joining us via Facebook. If you would like to ask a question, if you would like to send in a question, you can call. The phone number to be put live on the air is one 268 462 Seventy-four twenty. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text, you can send your question to one, two six eight seven eight two one four five four.
1: Yeah, Nathan, could I jump yeah. in? Yeah, I want to say something uh, to the same person that we just spoke to. Look, one of the best things to do is to try to find what is the precipitating cause of whatever is going on in the church. Normally, there's a something that happened that um, that is causing all the chaos. Try to get a handle around what that particular thing is and try to get a, a, a real perspective on it. And don't take one person's view either. If it's between the pastor and the deacon, talk to the deacon. Find out what his, what his situation what how he viewed it. Talk to the pastor. Try to see exactly wh- what where they're coming from, etc., cetera, et cetera. But uh, don't just take sides because, um, you know, this person is your friend, whatever it is. There are always two sides to a story. And even... It's a pastor, it's a bishop, there's always two sides to the story, and the best thing to do to, to, to really have an understanding of the problem is to try to hear the perspective from both persons so you understand where they're coming from. The other thing I like to say is this, if a church calls a pastor, this is my view, personal view, if a church calls a pastor to pass a pastor ministry, they call him to set a vision for the ministry. Okay, That's his job, that's not your job, that's his job. If you want to be the pastor, put yourself up for the pastor. But he he, he sets the vision. Now, he must persuade people. And he can't say, well, this is what we're going to do. He can say that, but we can't do it unless you vote on it or you support it because how are you going to do, uh, do something that you uh, feel very strongly about but you, the church not supporting it? To my mind, that just creates massive division. And if this is such a great idea, you ought to be able to persuade the people this is the best way to go. And I think sometimes... Um, That needs to be borne in mind. You're working with the pastor to fulfill the vision he has, as long as that vision is not contrary to Scripture. Uh, But his job in the process is to persuade you and to persuade the church. And if he can't persuade the church, that man is not acting wisely who runs ahead of the church because he's not going to get the support, and that could end up in disaster.
0: Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.06 And we are glad that you have taken time out of your Tuesday evening to join us for That's Truth. Again, if you haven't invited someone or encouraged someone else to listen to That's Truth recently, go ahead, send a WhatsApp, make a phone call, uh, roll down your vehicle window. I guess if you're in Antigua, you're supposed to be home by now. But if you're elsewhere, roll down your window and say, hey, Caribbean Radio Lighthouse has a live call in program. You can call and you can ask any question about life, and it'll be answered through a biblical worldview. Thank you for listening to That's Truth. Uh, Thank you very much to the individual and individuals who sent in those questions. Again, very heartfelt, and we appreciate your sincerity and your willingness to share your heart and to hear Pastor's perspective from a biblical worldview. Pastor, we have a question that has come in from St. Kitts. What did Lot's duties in Sodom entail?
1: Well, we we know that um, the fact that Lot was at the gate of the city. Uh, it is believed in you read commentaries that that indicates that he played some kind of a leadership role uh within the the city itself that is as far as we we can gather um but uh that would seem to be because you know he seemed to be a very wealthy person at the same time and so whether he and the, the, to balance that you know uh we're told in the bible that his his uh his conversation was vexed daily by what was going on in Sodom. So here's a man living in a situation, and his spirit is annoyed and upset because he sees all of this uh, perversion, and he has his own children, his own daughters, living in that kind of environment. But remember where Lot made that choice, huh? It was a purely a materialistic choice, and uh, it was also a very selfish choice because it was God who had to call Abraham. But when they developed this division between uh, Abraham and Lot, Abraham acted very good to it. He said, Listen, you, you decide, you take what you want. And, and Lot chose the best plot. Uh, that showed you how selfish he was. Now, I, I think the proper thing was to say, You're my uncle. It's God that has called you No, you, you make your choice no, It was the very, very opposite And I think that materialistic spirit um, Led Lot in that direction And then of course he prospered And seemed to have taken Some kind of a leadership position Being in the city, at the gate of the city Uh, It seemed as though he had some kind of a leadership position there, but we don't know all the details because it's just a panoramic survey of what happened. And the key thing there, of course, has to do with the perversion that was there and the fact that uh, Lot, it affected Lot, uh, it affected his daughters for sure, because the moment he escaped and he went into this cave they came up with the idea that they would get their daddy drunk and sleep with daddy one night and the other one slept, and we know what happened as a result of that. That kind of thinking, that kind of um, uh, immoral thinking, could only be the product of living in an environment where you are seeing things happening and it's affecting your mindset so that eventually you lose your moral bearings and you uh, begin to think in a perverted way. So I would I would just say that I think he had some kind of a leadership role being in the, the gates, and um but we can't go into much detail about that because the details are very very sketchy
0: along those same lines what was the role of judas iscariot
1: well i i i, I would like to say this judas uh, iscariot um being chosen by our lord um i hope we we got to understand that that was not done in my judgment uh, to ensure that he would betray the Lord, uh, if that was done in that, the motive clearly is wrong okay but the the part that judas played we we see Judas as an example of a person who comes into a movement and he has what motive Money. a monetary motive yeah. the there the 's no doubt about that that uh he becomes the treasurer and he 's the one pilfering from the from the the kitty. And uh, the fact also as well that he's willing to sell Christ for 30 pieces of silver. He is a man who is a money man, okay? And he he he's able to seep into the organization. Uh, so we, we, we must not try to impugn the motives of our Lord in selecting him. We need to realize that he is a person who made his own decisions, his own choices. But clearly... Uh, He is a type of the person who joins a ministry or church or organization purely for materialistic means and who has, at the end, uh, becoming wealthy or rich or or pilfering from the the, the organization. That's the biblical motive. The Bible calls him a thief. That's what he was. And let's not try to read anything more into it than what the Bible says uh, about this man.
0: Pastor, we have a caller from Bendels, Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please.
2: Hi
1: hey, Mr. Williams, how are you doing, sir?
2: Pastor, you How's the wife me? doing? Everybody's fine for the time. I'm glad to you hear you. that. Glad to hear uh, that. Nathan, I'm
0: doing well. Thanks for calling.
2: Thanks. Uh Pastor Movie have a question I want to spend some time in that. Uh there have any scripture in the Bible that gone support where that the during the tribulation the Christian will, will be raptured. Do what? That?
1: During the tribulation? Yes. Well, look, there are different views on the tribulation. There is the pre-tribulation rapture. There is the mid-tribulation rapture. Uh, There's also the pre-wrath rapture. There is the post-tribulation. So there are four different views, basically, when it comes to tribulation. Um, The question is, where does the evidence lie? Uh, I am a pre-tribulationist. I believe that the Bible says God has not appointed us to wrath. And the day of wrath is coming, And the Bible says God has not appointed us to wrath. The other thing I believe very strongly that really helps to explain this, there's always in the Old Testament some type of New Testament truth. Never forget that. And to my mind, the rapture is illustrated best with Enoch. Enoch is translated before the flood comes. So there has to be some kind of New Testament truth that corresponds with that. And the truth that best corresponds with that translation of Enoch is the rapture. That before the judgment of God comes, just like Enoch, we will be taken. So, and uh, the other thing, when you read the book of Revelation, uh, you don't find the mention of the church after chapter 3. That's very very significant. It's never mentioned anywhere from Revelation chapter four and onward to the end of Revelation in chapter three. That it's mentioned, and in chapter four, John is said to come up, and John, of course, is a type of the believer going up to, to the rapture. So I think that those are certain reasons that I believe. I mean, that's not all because we did a program on this before, but and I don't, I can't state all the reasons off my, my head right now. But I do feel that uh, the best uh, uh, interpretation of this whole matter. Is that the church will not go through the tribulation period? The church would be raptured, and then the tribulation would come. Remember, the tribulation period relates to Israel. The seven weeks that uh, Daniel talks about, uh, that that last week uh, of seven years that Daniel talks about in Daniel chapter nine, things twenty-seven to twenty-nine, it has to do with the Israel. It has nothing to do with the church. And remember that Israel is grafted back into God's program after the church is removed. Right now, the instrument God is using, the agent God is using on planet Earth is the church. But when the church is raptured, he now grasps Israel back into his plan. So that's where I, I see the all of these facts seem to converge in in explaining that the church will be raptured, and then you're going to have the tribulation period, because it's, that is directed mainly to Israel. I don't know if that helps you.
2: No, but let me tell you. The rapture and the second coming of Christ.
1: Mm -hmm. That's two different.
2: What you said? The rapture and the second coming of Christ.
1: Uh Is that two different times? Yeah, they're two different things altogether. There's something called look. There's something called uh, Christ coming in His glory, when every eye shall see Him. But uh, Christ is coming secretly as a thief in the night. There are two different things altogether it it's 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 people normally talk about the second coming the second coming has to do with christ coming what is called the day of the lord in the old testament where god pours out his wrath the rapture was never revealed in the new old testament so you don't find it in the old testament that's a truth that's a new testament truth that relates to the church because the church itself is not mentioned in the old testament either israel is mentioned in the old testament but the church was grafted into God's plan because of Israel's unbelief. So there is New Testament truth that's not found in the Old Testament, and the rapture is certainly not found in the Old Testament, although we can see it in type, now that we can look back in retrospect to see what took place, because there's always a type in the Old Testament that manifests some New Testament truth. And uh, But the second coming is not the same as the rapture. The rapture our Lord comes for His church. The second coming, He comes back to judge the world, and poured his wrath on Israel to purify Israel. So there are two different, uh, two different things we're talking about. One is secret. Be, uh, in the twinkling of an eye, uh, we all be, be be taken up. That's talked about. But when it comes, by every eye shall see him, and uh, men shall wail with him as a woman in uh, in travail. Two different uh, accounts. So the rapture relates to the church. The second coming was called the Day of the Lord. Relates to Israel and the, and the world, basically if you don't make that distinction by the way in the rapture Christ comes for his saints and he takes his saints Re- Re- the revelation or what is called the second coming he comes with his saints you see that
2: yeah I understand.
1: once he comes for and he takes them to be with him and then he comes back with them during the second coming and that is during the tribulation period
2: yeah I understand that but I, would, I wanted to clarify I understand that and second, second question sure can can I unsaved man backslide
1: What's he you going to backslide from
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> he was never in the kingdom so what's he you going to backslide from <laughs> only a believer can can backslide and uh and again in the old testament you find that israel could backslide uh, because israel is god's people and god would call them back but an unsafe person can't backslide he was never in so he can't get out so, so for you have to be in something to worry for me yeah you got gotta be in the, you know a, a person who backs like goes away from the Lord right yeah. you were in part of God's family and then you drifted back maybe into the world or something <laughs> uh but an unsaved person was never part of god's family so
2: so that is why a man cannot save one love.
1: yeah well some people look if you in in my judgment okay. Um, if you, There's so many problems If you believe a person Can be saved and lost For example He which has begun A good work in you Will perform it Until the day of Jesus Christ Now you think about that For just a moment Once he has really begun This work of salvation He completes it Until Christ returns That's a promise That's given to the believer mm. How how do you explain That promise uh, And uh, believe that a person The Lord can uh, save a person And then the person Be lost in the process It mean that God Has failed somewhere Along the line Right and then yeah. uh, he, uh, you know, he said, you know, no man is able to pluck them out of my hand. Yeah. Right. I mean, no, never, ever. That's in the Greek language, ever happened. And Paul says that he is persuaded neither life nor death nor principles nor powers nor things present nor things to come To ever separate from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, the believer will never be separated from our Lord once he's in the kingdom. And how do you take a believer who is placed in Adam and uh, in Christ and put him back in Adam? He's transferred yeah. from one <clears> kingdom <throat> into another. How? Who's going? Who's going to do that? And then of course the Lord said Who should lay anything to the Lord's elect It's the Lord See, So he has promised to save uh, us eternally And that's his pledge And and our assurance of eternal salvation Is based on the promise of God's word And uh, I find it difficult uh, For a person to believe that God Has genuinely justified a believer And saved him And pardoned him And forgiven him And then God doesn't keep him God keeps his children. They belong to him,
2: and he will keep them. And that's the last thing now. Uh, when the Bible talks about nothing in Christ cannot sin and will not sin for it's even that in him, what, what, why how would you explain that?
1: No, but no, no, that, that is where some clarification made. That's in John. Uh, I think it's John chapter 3 or 4. Yeah, First yeah, John. Yeah. 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 But what it's saying there is not that they cannot sin, the mm. Greek language clears that all up. There is a tense called the linear tense, or the present tense, or it's a, it's a continuous tense. And what it is saying there in the, in the passage is that a believer uh, will not habitually live a life of sin. That's what it's saying. It's not saying he can't sin. The way it's written in the King James Version was seem as though he can't sin, but that's not what it means in the Greek language. He cannot habitually live a life of sin. That's what it means.
2: Okay.
1: There's a difference between that. I, I, there's no such thing as sinless perfection down here. I think you know that. We're not going to ever be perfect until we see Him and we become like Him. But the thing that the Bible makes it very, very clear, that habitually living in sin is an anomaly for the Christian. See, uh, It cannot be that a person... C- because what do you get saved from? You get saved from sin. And the Bible said that when the Holy Spirit baptizes you into the body of Christ and make you a member of Christ, you ha- have died to sin. That means that you you have been separated from your sin nature, and the new nature has been implanted there. We that are dead to sin live any longer therein. That is continuously, habitually, practice sin. Paul is arguing in, in Romans chapter 6 against the idea that believers can habitually continue to live in sin. That's what Paul is arguing about. Paul is saying that it should never be this way. Because the power of sin has been broken in the believer's life. And Paul said, sin should not reign in the believer's life any longer. Sin is no longer king. Jesus is king. And Paul explains the mechanics of how that happened when Christ died on the cross and was resurrected. And that's why people need to understand that victory is promised. But you know what Paul says in that passage? After teaching all of this, Paul says, reckon it to be so. And the word reckon is, is guard it to be so. Start acting on faith that this is what God has done. The problem is that people don't have the faith. Uh, we, a lot of people, <laughs> I must say this, and that's, that's really the issue, but we need to understand that the power of sin is broken. We don't have to sin. We sin because we choose to sin. The unsaved man is driven by the old nature, but we are no longer controlled by the new old nature. We have a new nature in there that puts us in the direction of God. And the time that we do wrong or we sin is because at that moment, at that moment, we choose to do it. And unfortunately, because of the sin nature, that happens periodically in the believer's life. But it should not be the norm that a believer lives habitually in sin uh, for years and years and years and years and years and years and years. I have a hard time accepting that. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and people need to understand that and I think if people got Christianity out there it's not the real thing it's a bogus thing and people are just depending on the fact that they made a decision they're going to church and that's what that religion is all about they need to understand that Christianity is about a supernatural power that enables you to live a, a life of victory and triumph and not a life of defeat and habitual um, addiction to any kind of sin because why
2: why, why are you living about uh, what brother does preach with what can you me uh-huh and he believing in a man can save one lost, and I believe a man save always saved Yeah. But the important thing was if you have a pig and a sheep. If you put the pig in the mud, they didn't ha- enjoy yourself and happy Co- and correct. Great. Correct, correct. so you tried to get away from that mud yeah. because it don't belong to that mud.
1: Very good illustration. That's talking about the nature of a pig and the nature of a sheep are different. Pigs love uh, mud because that's their nature. Sheep can't stand it because that's not their nature. So it all has to do right. with the changed nature. A person has a new nature within would want to pursue holiness and righteousness before God exactly. and that's the key thing there uh, and the other thing is you know look the Bible tells in, in Hebrews chapter 12 that one of the ways you can really know if you're a child of God is this does God chasten when you are involved in sin Paul said if you're not chastened you're not a son you're a bastard you're an illegitimate child so a person can be a believer can get away from God and live in sin but if he belongs to the Lord, he would know that the Lord is going to ch- is chastening him. Now, he might rebel against that chastening, but believe you me, he's conscious that so many things begin to happen in his life. Uh, he begins to realize that God's hand is heavy upon him. Why? God chasteneth every child that is his, that goes away from him, because he's within the family. It's not you having a, a son or a child that goes away from you. You, you don't discipline somebody else's child. You discipline your own child. But when you do the discipline, to bring that person back into a right relationship with yourself, not to get rid of him or to cast him off. Now he may not respond uh, immediately and you have to put more pressure, and more pressure, and more pressure. And sometimes it comes to a point where you realize he's not responding, you got to take your hand off and just let the devil do some work on him like Paul says in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with the guy that was committing incest. Just let the devil have him for a while. If that doesn't bring into a sentence, there's a sin unto death. But God says that's enough, and God takes the person out. It's called pimpator Death. So you hear that this person just left church and something just happened, a bizarre accident right in front of the church. And people say, sad. It's not sad. God has taken them out, taken her out very suddenly because they're not responding to the divine chastening. And the Lord can remove us. If we have become a reproach to his name, he cannot leave us there indefinitely while his name is being tarnished uh, by us. He can, there's a sin unto death, and I believe that, that God draws a line at some point in time and takes that person out prematurely.
0: Thank you very much for your call from Bendels. We appreciate you listening and appreciate you calling in with your questions. The time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 826. If you have a question, you can call 1-268-462-7420. If you have a question and you want to WhatsApp or text it, please send it to the following. Phone number 1-268-782-1454. Pastor, a WhatsApp question from Trinidad and Tobago. There's a saying which goes, the grass isn't greener on the other side, but Psalm 232 says... He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. This green pasture that the Lord assures, is it his providential care over his children? Does the Lord care for us daily despite of the situations that we go through?
1: Yeah, well, I think that's a given. Uh, God's providential care of his people. And remember, um, in this COVID period especially, uh, I think maybe for the first time, we are almost first, Forced to live, as he told us to live, as thy days, so shall thy strength be. We've never been placed in a position before in my lifetime where we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or the next week. We are now forced to live how God intended us to live, one day at a time, depending upon him. And he will take care of his children. you know, God is not an uh, absentee father who doesn't take care of his, his children. You know, we blame the fact that most of our homes, we don't have fathers in our homes who provide for their children. God is not like that. God takes care of his children. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 6, he tells us, you know, why you worry? And then he draws a picture there. He says, you know, look... Look, Solomon in all his glory could, was not even adorned like the lily who, who was just just growing there in the gutter. You ever saw a, a beautiful white flower right in the gutter itself? He said not even Solomon was arrayed like that. And then he said, you know what? Uh, the birds, they don't uh, have barns and so on. But yet, your Heavenly Father, not their Heavenly Father, your Heavenly Father take care of them. Now, can you imagine I as a father taking care of other people's children and not my own? Hmm. See, and that's his point. If he takes care of the birds and the flowers, okay, it's your father who is doing that, not their father. You—that's the point. So, I'm just saying, uh, brother, that uh, the Lord has promised to provide for His people, take care of His people, and He will. That doesn't mean are not going to be trials sometimes, and that you know, because we have to be tested as to our sincerity sometimes, as to our real motive. So, we're going to find that there are times of testing, but he's the He has promised to providentially take care of us, and you can bet on it that he's going to lead us and provide for us especially during this time but let us get back to the biblical way of of living which we've lost sight of and that is daily dependent upon him and finding strength not to live for two weeks from now or a week from now but daily strength that's how we were intended to live it's just that we got accustomed to a certain lifestyle, and that has interrupted our schedule. And some of us, like myself, is having some difficulty trying to cope with it, I must admit. But I'm learning that, you know, that's how we're supposed to live, one day at a time. And uh, our Lord, uh, also in Matthew chapter 6, said that tomorrow will take care of itself, you know. By by worrying, you can't add one one inch to your height. Uh, just trust. And then he said what? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Make that your priority. God's kingdom and God's right. And then he said what? All these things will be taken care of. In other words, you honor God, you take care of God's business, and God said will honor you and take care of your business as well.
0: A WhatsApp question coming in from Antigua. Good night, brothers. Is it possible for a man of God to suffer to the same sin, such as pride, for years and even decades?
1: Look, I, I do feel that uh, there is a besetting sin that a person gets saved from. Um, I, it might be pride in this particular case, There are other things. But I think that every person that gets saved... There is always a predominant sin That seems to be what is keeping you from being safe I think I know what mine was And I think people know what, what they're saying It's not that you didn't want to You didn't hear the gospel You didn't want to respond But whatever it was Was your darling It was your the thing that, you, that really made you take The thing that you just didn't You could surrender And then one day the gospel is preached And you have a choice to make Am I willing now to give up this Whatever it is It doesn't mean you're not giving up the other things But this big thing And it's possible that a man's besetting sin. And by the way, pride is a sin that is besetting in all of us, let me put it that way. Mm. But there are some people who are so puffed up, and I I don't know for whatever reason it is happening, upbringing, whatever it is, but it's possible a person to uh, be proud for a long time, get saved, um, develop some kind of humility, and then something happens and it gets to his head again. I think that is possible. But I think that when that does happen, I think the the best thing to do is to have a private meeting with the person. You know, Matthew chapter eighteen is very, very, uh, very uh, psychologically effective in the sense that it understands human nature. It tells you go to the person yourself first, try to solve the problem. If you find it cannot be solved and they're, they're just adamant, the Bible says bring somebody else with you. Now bring somebody not that somebody who is objective. Somebody is a person of integrity, not your favorite friend or whatever it is, or somebody who has a, a beef in for him or for that person. And then the Bible says, you know, if it's still not solved, it's a matter of calling the church together. So, listen, we're trying to solve a problem. We've been about it a biblical way. We can't see this to resolve this matter, and we need to get your input on the matter. If we would approach problems like this, I think in most cases, we should be able to resolve them at some point in time. And then the Bible says, when the church. Makes a decision, and that person, uh, for whatever reason, the Bible says the church treats that person as an infidel, a publican, and a sinner, as though he's not a saved person. See, that's how important the church is in the economy of God in dealing with problems. Uh, We don't need to go to court for these things if we would just trust the moral judgment, the spiritual judgment of God's people. Uh, and I would say um, it's possible, but if it is seen by you or seen by somebody else, there needs to be some kind of a confrontation. And the Bible tells us, of course, pride goes before destruction, and holy spirit before fall. So he's going to fall at some point in time if he doesn't uh, develop a contrite and a broken spirit. And if conceit rules him, it's going to lead to his ruin.
0: And another question coming in. How do you differentiate between an intelligent man in the pastor's role who can preach well, and one that is a true man of God?
1: Good question. <laughs> Very good question. Uh, I, I I think there's, uh, there, there is some difference there. there got to be some difference there. But I do feel that uh, you can have a combination of both. That's the problem that comes in right there. Uh, um, I would. I would... Read that question again to me, Nathan, yeah. because let me respond to that.
0: How do you differentiate between an intelligent man in a pastor's role who can preach well and one that is a true man of God?
1: Are you suggesting that a true man of God is not an intelligent uh, and able to handle the word? So I'm not too sure where the, the, the in other words, they don't necessarily have to be, um they can be be in the, the same person as that. what I would say to you is that one of the things that you would uh, begin to understand is uh, a person's insight into scripture has to be a guiding light because second, First Corinthians chapter two talks about the natural man not understanding the things of the spirit of God, but he that is spiritual understand those things so what one what one, one would have to do with the insight into scripture itself? Uh, and uh, etc. The other thing I would think would have to do with his personal life. That had to be a, a major, major factor. Um, a pastor who is uh, have all the tools in terms of being able to preach well, but his life, his moral life, is in shambles. Uh, clearly, there's a disparity there. And it's interesting, by the way, that all the qualifications in Titus and in Timothy are moral qualifications there's only one intellectual qualification and all those and that is that he should be able to teach all the others are moral qualifications and i would suggest you that that is another aspect in his own moral life and how he lives uh uh, before people those are two things his uh, insight into scripture and i would suggest you look at his moral life i think that helps you to decide whether or not he's genuine authentic or if he's real or fake
0: Another question that has come in from Antigua, Pastor, is it possible for a man to preach sound doctrine and yet be unsaved?
1: Yeah, I think he can do that. Yeah, of course he can do that. Uh, he can read it and preach it. Uh, everybody can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that that can happen. Um,
0: I remember reading the testimony of a pastor who had preached for many years, and then when he was preaching one uh, message and gave the invitation. Salvation, the invitation. He went, hard. he went forward because yeah. it, it, he realized that he was relying on his his works and not completely on the work. Yeah, of Yeah, I Catholic. think
1: I've read that that, uh, that 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 that, that that's illustration hasn't really happened. Yeah, I think a person can do that. A person can have a lot of factual information. That that there's no question about that, uh, and that is that is one of the troubling things that. Uh, one has to have to Because you listen to some of these guys On the radio preaching sometimes They've got all the tools They've got the oratorical skills They've got the charismatic personality They seem to be able to have a good handle On the scripture uh, But then again When you Read about their lives And The their, their, their way they, Their lifestyle You know that something is wrong There's a disparity there There has to be uh, synchronization of these factors can't be one individual factor you look at you can't just look at the preaching aspect of it as well you've got to look at his personal life I think that's crucial and then his value system I mean I, I, for the life of me I can't understand why a pastor would think that he has to have four Rolls Royce he has to have a private jet and he has to have a house that has a million dollars To my mind, my heart would break if that were the case. I mean, Mm. if you really know the suffering in the world and the needs out there, and that's the kind of lifestyle you're living, to my mind, there's something wrong there. I can't can't conceive of that happening, uh, and that bothers me greatly when I hear about it, so uh, I think we need to go back to Scripture, see what the biblical qualifications are for the pastor, and make sure that's the basis that you use as a judgment as whether or not he's called or not called and not be enamored by his personality or his charisma or his oratorical skills.
0: Pastor, a message that has come in from St. Kitts. What are the greater works the believers shall do Spoken of by Jesus, and I think this might be referencing John chapter 14, verse 12, which says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father.
1: Well, I, you know, I want to probably try to address that another session, but let me just say a few comments on that. You know, think about this that. Uh, Christ lived within the confines of a small place called Jerusalem, uh, and he ministered to a small group, to be very honest with you. Uh, we who are converted, and we who are living in, in this age, we can reach far more people than Christ ever reached. Think about that for just a moment. That's a far greater work uh, than than he actually was able to accomplish in terms of of uh, uh, numerical numbers, etc., etc. That is one aspect aspect of it, so that's the main thing that comes to mind the The fact that we would be able to do world evangelism uh that's a far greater work than he he only remained within one particular location, never went outside. Uh, into another country per se, other than maybe uh, Sidon, etc. If you want to take that, to country. but he never was able to do uh, a world global missions going all over the world. That is one of the the, the, the main things I would I would uh, I would I would say. The other thing is that you know he never established schools, Christian schools. He never established hospitals. He never that kind of. He never uh, got involved in this uh, welfare of prisoners. All those things, prison reforms, the care of the people who are handicapped, uh, the care of people who are uh, mad and insane, all of those uh, groups that were started to meet the needs of those type of people, w- behind that is not government. Government took over after Christians started these kind of things. Universities were started by Christians. Hospitals were started by Christians as well. Uh, concern for the uh, the prisoners was started by Christians, not government. Uh, so there are a lot of great things that we have been able to do that Christ himself because his main purpose was of course to die on the cross but that we were given on the job of carrying that gospel to regions that he could not he did not reach and 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 uh, bring Christianity into areas of, of people's lives that uh he did not uh, we're not able to do it that we can do today
0: just a follow up to the previous question talking about uh the intelligent man who was filling the pastor's role uh-huh. the listener says uh, one person is saved and intelligent, and the other is not saved and intelligent. Yeah. So by by no means <laughs> implying that a, yeah, the man of God is yeah, not intelligent. Yeah, right,
1: right. The, the only the thing I'm trying to draw your attention to that the way you the, the only thing you could come back to is the biblical qualifications and the lifestyle of the person. I think that's the, the acid test. Uh, you know, it's, it's not the 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 greater things that people th- try to think about, that they're going to do miracles, and they're going to do all of that. All of those were confirmatory gifts that I mentioned in the book of Hebrews, that these things were given to confirm the message. The message once was established, there was no need now for these uh, appendages to try to confirm the message. It was now the Holy Spirit changing people's lives. So we need to not see it in the context that it means that we're going to do all these miraculous things. That That's how people view that particular passage passage, but if you look at it uh, and think of it in, in, in a broader terms of the impact Christianity has had and Christians have had on every different area of life, whether it be education or science, whether it be uh, prison reform or social reform, et cetera, et cetera, you see that the work that is done as a result of the Christian faith that, that Christians be able to do, to do uh, and missions uh, far exceeded anything our Lord was able to accomplish himself individually, and I think that is what uh, is being projected there.
0: Pastor, we have a caller from Nevis. Go ahead with your question, please.
2: Yes, good evening.
0: Good evening, sir.
2: Uh, I have a question from Revelation chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. I would like to know what that uh, signifies.
0: If I could answer that away, I would. Let me read that passage here. Revelation 6, 7 and 8 says, And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And verse 8 And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword, and with hunger, and with death and with the beast of the earth.
1: Um, without going into um, not having the time to look at it just responding immediately in the context of what you've just asked, this has to do with what's going to take place during the tribulation period and the four agents that the Lord is going to use to bring planet earth to his knees. Uh, the four horses are represented of the different uh, means that the Lord is going to use in that regard. Uh, if you look in Revelation 6, uh, what was your first one, Nathan?
0: 7 and 8. 6, 7, and 8. Uh-huh. Was, uh, Revelation 6. Uh, uh,
1: he said, uh, For I looked, and behold, and, um, a ho- pale horse. Um, uh, could you read that? Verse 8?
0: Yeah. Verse 8, And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death. And hell followed him.
1: Yeah. Okay. Let me. The first one there is that one of the agents that are going to be used during the tribulation period is, is is death in different forms. As a matter of fact, if you read the uh, the Revelation six to, to Revelation uh, twenty, you'll find that by the time this whole tribulation period is over, um, more than half the world's population is going to be destroyed, depleted, completely depleted, obliterated. Uh, the Bible talks about that in this passage. So death is going to be one of the means that during the tribulation. It's going to be a hard period of time. And and death and Hades, by the way, death claims uh, the life and Hades, which is the grave, claims the body, basically. That's what it's talking about there, that uh, death. What's the other one? That's the first horse. Which is the, the
0: yeah, and hell followed him. And power was given unto him, the fourth part of the earth, to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death and with beasts of the earth.
1: And again, that's the different means now that are going to be used during the tribulation period to bring about death. Um, it, it's mentioned there are four different areas that are going to be used. The sword, famine, the plague, and of course, wild beasts. And of course, when you have a bloody carnage and you have so many people killed, uh, you can't bury the bodies so therefore the wild beasts begin to take um advantage of situation and but that is what it 's talking about the different means that the during the tribulation period those are the four different means that death would use um, to 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 destroy hum, humankind the sword and of of course when you have war, you normally have famine. When you have famine, you have massive deaths, and then you've got these. Uh, and the other one was um, that that verse number eight. That's what he that said. was. Verse number yeah. eight. So that is just one. If you go through the other passage, uh, go down later. It talks about the next horse. There are four horses that are given in the book of Revelation, and each one is specified uh, at, a, at a different color. Um, if you go, let's look at chapter six, for example. Look at um, verse number
0: two. Chapter six and verse number two says, And I saw and behold a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering. And to conquer
1: again, this is Nami portrayed as the antichrist because christ the real uh, Christ is coming back on a white horse in revelations chapter twenty one uh, chapter nineteen, I think it is, so he is the imitation of Christ this is the Antichrist that will come and offer the world of peace to peace. the world will go after him, and he conquers not by uh, war, he conquers by peace because you notice he has a, a bow, but he doesn 't have the arrow. If you check in the scripture, that is symbol, a symbol of um, that he's not using. The, he's using the bow, and of course, the Bible says when it says peace, 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 sudden destruction. When he rises on the world scene, the world's in chaos. He comes to the man with the solution, the brilliance to resolve the world's uh, economic problems, the world's uh, issues, and the, the world follows this one because he's a mastermind. domain. That you no, know, the world is looking for Superman, the one who's supposed to come. The one Jesus, who has already come, people rejected. They're now looking for the one, the Antichrist, who's going to come, and that's going to. And then there's another horse after that, in verse three.
0: And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, "Come and see." And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another.
1: Again, notice that the Antichrist comes and offers peace. The world goes after him, and then that is interrupted by war, basically. Okay, go ahead.
0: And there was given unto him a great sword. And then in verse 5, And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and a measure of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. The world
1: is denarius, a day's wages, basically. So you talk about famine. The black horse is, is famine. So when you have war, and normally all the communication of getting resources into a country, all the trade routes are normally um, destroyed. And so you have a situation of scarcity to the point where it takes a whole day's wages just to get uh, barley or uh, what is mentioned there? Uh, wheat. Mm. See? Uh, two of the basic commodities. Now the cost of that is a day's wages. So the idea you're going to have scarcity and famine. So, sir, what I'm saying to you, in these four horses that you have in Revelation chapter 6, is just a pictorial display of the time that's coming during the Antichrist. Remember that Revelation is a pictorial book. It is showing you in pictorial form what is going to come. And these are just uh, symbolic of um, the events that are going to come. You're going to have the Antichrist coming in the white horse. Uh, You're going to have war coming. Then you're going to have famine. And following that, you're going to have death. Uh, that the Bible talks about. That's the biblical answer I can give you.
2: And who controls death and hell? Is it the devil or is it God?
1: Well, in this case, in this case, because the Lord is judging planet earth, he now uh, puts that in the domain of the enemy to to bring havoc upon planet earth. He can delegate authority to that. Remember in Revelation chapter 2 when he is seen as the one who has the I said i got the keys of uh, uh, in my girdle, hell and the grave and hell. So he has the keys. But in the case where he is actually uh, punishing planet Earth, this world uh, is doomed for punishment. It's an evil, wicked, ungodly world. Uh, I, I, if I could use one example here for just a moment, sir, to let you understand where we are today. Can you imagine the most enlightened uh age of modern of all time can you imagine that one country alone which is I'm just taking this from America since 1974 1973 or 74 America's alone up to this point has killed over 37 million innocent babies and aborted 37 million that's only America alone Every year, one million babies are aborted in America. Every single year, one million. That has nothing to do with what's happening in Europe, which is far worse, what's happening in China, which is far worse, or what's happening in other countries. How can a world like this that can destroy innocent life could continue that way with impunity? This world is ripe for judgment and it's gonna be so severe the Bible says there has never been, nor will there ever be a time like the Great Tribulation. But he is gonna allow these things to happen because man has reached the iniquity of man has reached the point where God said that's the limit. And that when God pulls out his wrath, and he is now being the God of grace and mercy and patience. But when his day of wrath comes, woe to planet earth, woe to humankind. Uh, It is not going to be pleasant. It is going to be horrific.
0: Thank you very much for that call from the island of Nevis, Nathan. We appreciate it. And keep listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse and encouraging others to listen. The time is 8.50. We've got about eight and a half minutes left in tonight's episode. And, Pastor, we have three more questions. I'm going to see if I can get through all of them. A uh, question from St. Kitts. What tongue do angels speak with? In reference to 1 Corinthians thirteen one, which says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal.
1: Well, all, all I can tell you is that we, we know that when angels came down to planet Earth, they certainly adopted human language. Because you've got Abraham speaking to angels. You've got... Uh, You've got um, Samson speaking to angels. You've got
0: um, Lot Lot
1: speaking to angels. You've you've got uh, Joseph speaking to angels. So uh, all I can say to you, the language that we know that they've spoken so far is a human language. And if they were in Abraham's, day, they're speaking Hebrew. If they're speaking in in the book of uh, the New Testament, they speak in Greek. So they adopted the language to the particular circumstances. What I would say about that passage in, Corinthians 13, Paul is dealing with the air hypothetical. We must not assume that Paul is just saying there's a a specific specific language that the angel is speaking. He's speaking hypothetically. Uh, Do I have the eloquence, basically, is what he's saying of an angel, whatever it is. But that's a hypothetical expression he's using. He's just saying that we can have all the eloquence in the world, but if we don't have love, we're nothing. Basically, that's what Paul is saying. So it's not talk and the capacity to be linguistically gifted that really is matter you can have all those things but if we lack love we lack the main thing and therefore we're just a hollow symbol that makes a lot of noise and uh, there's no it's it's just like finding a fruit that ought to have, like a, you ever had a coconut yet, that you, you crack it open and you expect to get the meat and then it's dried up, there's nothing in there for you. That's the disappointment of that. And I think uh, Paul has just joined the attention that love is the important thing and eloquence, really. No, no matter how eloquent we are, uh, it doesn't uh, pass the test unless we have
0: love. A WhatsApp question from Antigua. When God gave Moses the law, he said that if a man entices and sleeps with a woman that the man should marry her if her father allows and that comes from Exodus 22:16 and 17. Should this be part of the law? Should this part of the law be obeyed today? In other words, if a couple is caught in fornication, are they to get married? And how do we know what parts of the law we are still to follow today? Well,
1: the, 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 one of the key things there is that you find that there are certain principles in the Old Testament that are repeated in the New. That's the first thing to should guide us in terms of what should be transferred from one to the other. The other thing is to try to understand the rationale behind, or the, I don't want to say the rationality, the uh, the purpose behind the particular enactment in the Old Testament. That was given really to protect the woman, to be honest with you. Uh, God was concerned about a lady who was ravaged and taken advantage of. Uh, in those days, uh, when people were looking for a partner, they were not looking for somebody who had been around three or five men already. They are looking for a virgin. You remember that when the man married a woman... They would put a sheet under, and when they go into the first night of um, consummation, uh, the proof that this woman was a virgin, the sheet was taken out, and the blood was shown. That was the concern. People want to make sure they marry somebody who was pure. Now, you take a situation where a woman goes through that kind of a trauma, and then she's discarded. Nobody wants her. She is like like a pariah in society, and the Lord said, No, that's not going to happen. So he put things in place to protect the woman. To make sure that she would have some kind of a future, and uh, she would not be somebody is totally discarded and can't make a living for herself. Remember, back in those days, a woman was dependent on a man uh, for her sustenance. So, it really, it was designed uh, to protect the woman to give her safety and security. Now, what about today? Uh, the situation is far different than today uh, than that because I don't advise because a woman. Even in the church Two people in the church They get missed With the other G- girl Gets pregnant The worst thing You could ever do Is to just tell them Go and get married uh, I mean And and the situation Is not the same A woman in that situation Can survive uh, She can find a job She can She can Better herself with edu- in, the, in the Old Testament days There was no, nothing Like that whatsoever uh, So I would not Advise that you Just going to marriage Because you find Yourself pregnant I know of people Who have done that the marriage is hardly ever last And a lot of guilt is carried over And that begins to destroy the marriage So I don't think it is applicable uh, today In that regard um, But that is a matter between the individuals uh, If the young lady um, felt that If that's what she wants to do We have to trust uh, She has a free choice to make uh, But it should not be a matter of imposition Uh, because that's not how the Bible uh, requires us to live today. And there's no uh, biblical principle along the line that reaffirms that. But if you begin to understand the reasoning behind it and why the Lord did it, you can appreciate the value of his concern uh, for the lady and why he enacted that particular legislation.
0: Now, Pastor, for the individual who finds, or the couple who finds themselves in that situation, and they were, let's say it was 20 years ago, let's say it was five years ago, they were advised or told, you have to get married, and they got married, and that relationship is less than a great relationship. What advice do you have for them in the last two minutes? My
1: my advice is simply this, you're married okay once you're married you're married you just can't jump over marriage because uh if you do that by the way if 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 people today were to leave the marriages where things are not golden i'm not sure how many marriages (laughs) we be left (laughs) so what you've got to realize that you've made vows before god we all make mistakes we all what if i
0: married the wrong person not me i i married the (laughs) right person
1: (laughs) (laughs) well even if a person feels that way you're married you're committed a vow before god and you ought to make a marriage work look there has to be room for growth forgiveness you have to a uh, uh, room for people to be able to uh, look at issues and um, understand that there 's no perfection in this life. But what is more important is our commitment to God and our vows before God. You must take this thing very seriously. And when God says that we are married for life and permanently, we should see that seriously as well. And if even though we feel that we are not married the right person, now we're looking back ten, fifteen years, uh, you're married, and uh, you've got to stay within the marriage, make the marriage work. And I'm saying to you that with Christ and with biblical principles and those things put into practice. Uh, your affection and your love for that person can grow depending on your response to them and how you deal with that person.
0: Thank you very much for joining us for this episode of That's Truth. I just want to mention something that I often mention, and I didn't get a chance to mention it yet. There is a resource that we want to make available to you free of charge. If you have internet, you can go to our website, radiolighthouse.org. Scroll down to the second picture that you see. It's a large microphone, and right in the middle, you'll see a circle that says podcast. Click on that link, and that will take you to the That's Truth podcast. Once you click on it, there will be a link that says uh, Visit Podcast. Click on that and you can go to all previous 145 or 146 episodes. And I mention this because there were a couple of questions that referenced topics tonight that we have discussed in great detail, one of those being the rapture. And specifically, if you are wanting to study out the rapture in more detail, Uh, Episode 95 and Episode 96 Discuss it in much greater detail Again, keep your radio dial tuned to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse We will be back, Lord willing, next Tuesday evening With more Christ-honoring answers to your questions If you have a question that comes to your mind during the week Go ahead and send it to our WhatsApp number The number is 1-268-782 1-4-5-4. I'm going to give that to you again Because I was kind of rushed there 1-268-782-1454 Is the number to WhatsApp or text your question to Thanks for your interaction and have a blessed night Thank you for joining us for today's program We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths Shared from God's word to strengthen your faith Now you've heard it That's truth